In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. The opening of Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, says quite famously, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Or as Douglas Copeland, who coined the term and wrote the book, Generation X, said, all families are psychotic. That's not to say that there are not happy and wonderful families, but even happy families are sometimes unhappy. You know what I mean. Our guest today comes from a family. He's also a pastor, a professor, a theologian, and a writer. Most of Arthur Bohr's work and writing has been in helping to educate and inform around matters of theology and faith and church. His latest book takes a more personal turn. He writes about his own family of origin, and he does so reflectively and honestly in a way that will likely help you to grapple with the reality of your own family background, particularly if you grew up in church circles. Here is just one line from the beautifully written book. Families can be rough. Families at home and families of faith. In my decades of being a pastor, one of the more difficult realities that I've consistently seen is that people in church struggle with their families. There's a kind of sorrow that I carry for people in the congregations where I've served. I can look back and think of the emotional pain that was present in familial relationships, even among the most capable faithful, apparently well-adjusted people in the church. The sorrow is accompanied by a hope that I feel in faith, that in the end, I believe that all will be redeemed, even the pain we've suffered in our unhappy, happy families. Arthur Bors, in telling his story, calls us to this hope, even as he speaks unsparingly about the reality that is far less than ideal, far less than the facade that is often presented. So I pray that you will listen to our conversation and be compelled to this kind of hope as well. Thanks for listening. We're very pleased to have our guest and to have met our guest uh, recently um, from a book that we both read, Allison and I. Hi, Allison. Hello. Um, That we, we both read called Shattered, A Son Picks Up the Pieces of His Father's Rage. Our guest is Arthur Boris, who we're super... Uh, excited to yeah. talk to you about this work. I'm going to kind of introduce, because uh, many of our listeners may not have met Arthur before, be familiar with his work. So, uh, as well as walking the Camino de Santiago in Spain and the Bruce Trail in Ontario, Arthur is pastored in urban and suburban and rural and inner city settings in Ontario and in the Midwest. He's taught at several seminaries. He's a priest ordained in the Anglican Church of Canada, and he's a Benedictine oblate. In the last 30 years, he's authored or edited a dozen books addressing the intersection of faithfulness and daily life. Uh, His award-winning books include The Way is Made by Walking, that's about the Camino Walk, 
never call them jerks. I think that's on like uh, um, one second. Didn't, church. Didn't somebody ask you to conflict? write like a follow up for that, Arthur? Never call them jerks. You say maybe you should. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Never call them jerks. Where, At least. where did you where did you hear that? Yeah. yeah. Some people say, I changed my mind. They are yeah. jerks. <laughs> At least don't let them hear you call them that. Uh, healthy responses <laughs> to difficult behavior, living into focus, choosing what matters in an age of distractions, writing on technology. Uh, he clearly loves to study, Arthur does, as he has half a dozen <laughs> academic degrees. And whole, and his favorite is a master's in fine arts and creative writing from Seattle Pacific University that he completed in his seventh decade. Uh, he is the oldest son of Dutch immigrants. English is his second language. And you'll know this from the book. He learned how to pronounce his name in kindergarten. So because uh, uh, lots of his family who also named him didn't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, he's been married to Lorna for over four decades. And they're proud parents of two adults, both married um, and oh, and then there's stuff about his cat and stuff, but we'll uh, the cat's name Fraser. So, awesome. Arthur, we're <laughs> super happy to have you join us, and thank, thank you, you so much for your book. Um, we both we were talking about this earlier, we both read it and enjoyed it, though it's it's a In, very enjoying is yes, not really the correct unsparing term. memoir. Yes, so. um, thank you so much for 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 uh talking with us today, Arthur. Um, so your your memoir is 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 particular like you you've got uh kind of a certain lens that that you frame this through and i'm interested to know why why now like this is this is different from your other books that you've written different from other writing different from from probably a lot of like memoir um so how did you kind of come to choose to write your your memoir kind of in the framework of your relationship with your father largely um, and why now? So thanks very much for having me here. And uh, it's a real pleasure to talk with you. And also, I must say, it's a pleasure to be interviewed by people who have actually read the book that we're <laughs> talking amazing. about. We, that we, doesn't we, always... It's amazing that doesn't how that's... Always, yeah, it's exceptional, I've heard. Apparently. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we're not experienced enough to know that we didn't need to read the yeah. book. No. Anyway. I, I enjoy okay. doing that. Well, well I, I, I was interviewed many years ago by Mary Hines on... Hmm. CBC Tapestry uh, about my Camino book and she and her producer had both read the book and I saw all the careful outline hmm. that they had done oh. of their notes and the plan of the interview and I thought wow that is the way to do it so I was quite impressed so so you're in a good school there Yay. I appreciate it <laughs> good company <laughs> so I think several things came together in the in the writing of this book one thread would be that I have been writing for a long time. As you've noticed, uh, I've been publishing books for over 30 years. And about 20 years ago, I started paying more attention to the craft of writing and the quality of writing. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that several authors that I liked a lot were not just telling me ideas that I thought were worth hearing, but they were phrasing them in ways that were beautiful. Uh, the choices of language, the alliteration, the rhythm of the language. And um, so I started looking into it more, and I, I found that there was this kind of genre that was literary nonfiction or creative nonfiction. And I, start, I, I aspired to move towards that because all of my writing really had been pastoral theology. Mm -hmm. I'd always written as a pastor. So I wrote about you know, the Lord's Prayer or daily prayer. I wrote about dealing with conflict, 
Um, so I had all, I had these kind of issues that had come up that were important to me for one reason or another, and they were always in the pastoral context. So my writing was pastoral, it was teaching, it was counseling, sometimes it was persuading, uh, sometimes it was chastising, which is not such great writing, but anyway. Um, so I started to aspire to write uh, in a more literary fashion. And um, I think the turnaround book for me was The Way is Made by Walking, where I started moving into a different form of writing. And and that book is also, it's, it's a memoir of sorts, because it's about a journey that I made and the reflections that I had in the pilgrimage in, in Spain. Mm-hmm. So that'd be one uh, strain. And then uh, back in 2016, I started an MFA, a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, and I was kicking around various ideas of what to work with. And I always thought that uh, it might be interesting to write about my childhood. And um, there are several things about my childhood. And one is, as you noted, I'm the oldest son of Dutch immigrants. And so I grew up speaking Dutch. I grew up hanging around with Dutch people. I went to a Dutch church and a Dutch school. My parents' friends were all Dutch. My dad's customers were all Dutch. His employees were Dutch. So we were just immersed in Dutchness all the time. And uh, I grew up thinking I'm not Canadian, I'm Dutch. Mm. Except when I went to Holland and they would tell me, well, you have a really old-fashioned accent. And uh, and I think, you know, I don't really get how they do things here in Holland. And then I concluded, well, I guess I'm not Dutch either, so what am I? And that's a classic kind of thing. I, you know, if you have friends who've been missionary kids or mm-hmm. the children of diplomats, they'll talk about being third-culture kids because they're from one culture, raised in another culture, and they're not quite sure where they fit. So there were a lot of dynamics there that um, that I thought would be fun to explore, especially in, in Canada here where immigration has played such a huge role mm-hmm. in our in our country. And um, and then the third was, and I hadn't thought I hadn't actually thought a lot about this or planned a lot about this, but my father was a complicated man. He uh, he had problems with a- anger and with alcohol abuse. He was a very successful businessman, but he was quite driven in his work. Hmm. And um, uh, in some ways, he was a difficult person to live with. And, uh, I, you know, I loved him. And I, I, I cared for him when he died. I was with him all through the night of his last night of life. And I was glad, glad to do that. And I anticipate seeing him in the next life, whatever the next life uh, looks like. But um, uh, well, there were things that happened. So the first, the first thing that I remember in my life, actually, is my father throwing a potted plant at my mother, oh, you, and it went through the picture window. So the my first memory open the book yeah. with it's incredible. Scene. Yeah, yeah. So my first memory is an act of violence, right? And uh, you know, I was too young really to take it in what the real implications of it were. Uh, according to my mom, I stuck out my tongue and blew a raspberry at my dad and said, yeah, yeah, you missed. And so they always laugh when they tell the story. Um, but then in retrospect, I think, well, you know, I'm not sure how funny that story is. Yeah. And uh, um, when I was 20, oh, when I was seven, my dad beat me into a blackout. That was a pretty horrifying experience. And I, I thought I could die in that, in those moments. And, um, I have a very vivid memory in the fact that I can remember everything until the moment he 
got near me and I, I can't remember anything for several hours, that's pretty significant. And, uh, and then when I was 14, he beat me really badly again. So he only beat me twice, uh, but they were bad occasions. And on both occasions, I thought I could die. And I didn't really think much about them because fathers were rough in those days. Mm. My father was not as rough as some other fathers. And, you know, we all assumed it was the parents' right to do those kind of things. So I didn't really think about it. When I was 20, I was in a, I was in a university class. And... Um, the nun who was teaching the class had us, asked us to write the 10 most important stepping stones in our life. And I couldn't think of much. And uh, so one of the stepping stones I wrote was a day when I happened to lose a fountain pen. And that had happened pretty recently, and I was upset about it for a while. And so I wrote that up. But you know what? I didn't mention anything about my dad, nothing. And um, so I didn't really think about it. And I did some family systems work, family of origin work in my 30s. And then I thought a little bit more about um, what my dad had done, but um, again, I didn't make I didn't make that much of it. My dad died when I was uh, thirty four, so he and I never really processed this stuff. Although I'm not sure he would have been capable of processing yeah. it with me, but I never really had a chance. So, in my late fifties, around sixty or so, I. I just I, I felt like you know I'd made I'd gotten through my life. I made my life work. Um, you know, I had a good, good marriage. We raised good kids. I had uh, good work to do all along, but there were things that I struggled with all along. So I, I have mood fluctuations. I can get overwhelmed by emotions quite easily. Uh, I can get triggered easily. And, uh, I also, you know, I have anger issues, not, not to the degree my dad did, but, um, I know how easy it is to become angry. And I know, I know that that can be destructive. So it was a struggle with me, struggle for me. And I'm like, you know, when I was a teenager as a Christian, I thought, well, you get right with Jesus and your life just gets better and better and better. And you're on continual ascent. <laughs> That's totally and, how it uh, works. <laughs> yeah, totally. And uh, I think you're a little younger than I, so you can, you can, <laughs> you can still claim that. Just teasing you, Allison. Oh, I don't know that I can so, claim that, Arthur. <laughs> well, anyway, um, so around 60, I thought, I'm not, you know, there's something that's not working. Hmm. Um, hmm. And I think partly it's just when you go through life, you kind of, you push down the stuff you can't deal with for whatever reason, including the responsibilities of life. But here I was, uh, soon to be retired, and um, um, I, I couldn't push it down anymore. I couldn't push it back. I had to, I had to deal with it. Hmm. And at the same time, I was uh, working on writing uh, my memoir, and what emerged for me as I wrote was the huge significance of my relationship mm. with my dad. So I thought my book would have these three th themes that I told that I, that I mentioned to you already, and and certainly they're all there. But the most important theme is figuring out um, my relationship with my father, yeah. how his behavior affected me, how I have tried to come to some peace with that and, and, and grow out of that. And, and, um, so what I, what, and what I realized through the, through doing this work was that my dad had PTSD, which was not a term. No, I, I don't even, that didn't I don't even know. Then. Right. I don't even know when I heard, you know, specifically PTSD, but I can remember it was about 20 years ago, a student of mine told me she had trauma and she started teaching me about trauma mm -hmm. and, 
I read some of the classics about trauma. And that's the first time I really started thinking about trauma. And, uh, but when I, when I was reflecting on my dad, I realized, oh, he had PTSD. Clearly he went through two wars and he shows all, he shows all kinds of classic signs of of having PTSD. And, um, and the more I thought about it, I realized, Hey, I have PTSD too. Um, that explains a lot of the kind of struggles that I have. And, uh, it helps me get a handle on, um, some of the challenges that I have to overcome and also frees me up to live differently. So I don't have, I'm not quite in, as enslaved by, uh, that reactivity or those problems as I was before. I don't uh, We'll probably talk about this, uh, some more, but, having a trauma-informed perspective is quite intriguing. Mm. And you can actually see it everywhere. Yeah. So, if, for example, you know, we're coming, we're coming close to Easter now. If you read all those narratives, the post-resurrection narratives, those disciples were all traumatized. Yeah. And, mm. and some of the weird stuff that happens, yeah. uh, like Thomas, you know, like Thomas not knowing what to do with Jesus, well, all of those disciples in the upper room, they were all traumatized. So to read scriptures from a trauma perspective really is good. very, very interesting. Really yeah. good. Um, I also, you know, because my name is Arthur, I happen to like King Arthur stories, oh, yeah. Arthurian <laughs> stories, Arthurian legends. Trauma is all through those. Yeah. It's incredible. So um, what a great, uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in how from, you know, what you were writing before, and then you say the turn was the Camino um but your your voice as a teacher helper someone who mm-hmm. has something to say you know it's very interesting yeah um I mean, uh, it, oh, can i just say yeah, I'll just say one, one other thing here is uh and again we might talk about this a little bit more um uh this year i was really helped by gabber Mate's new book yeah, the trouble with normal mm-hmm. right here. yeah i was just saying i think and, it's just behind todd somewhere he, he really well, loved it as well. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. And um, at the same time, I read w- Wendell Berry's latest tome. Mm. I really like Wendell Berry out of yeah. Kentucky. And um, I've actually, I'm, I'm toying with the idea. I, I've been doing this for, for a while with parishioners, is trying to help them understand sin differently. Mm. You know, yes. when I was growing up, sin was, we'd have a list of rules. Yep. Um, many of them, we had no idea why we had those rules, but God's God, you got to do what God says, period. And if, uh, if you don't do what God says, God's going to hit you over the head or throw a pot of pet plant through the window or who knows what. And uh, I abandoned that quite a while. I abandoned that quite a while ago. Uh, I don't think God is the Santa Claus toting up who's, you know, who's naughty and nice and just waiting for us to mess up so God can zap us. Yeah. Uh, I haven't believed that. I haven't believed that for a long time. Um, I, I believe that I, I believe that sin or sinfulness is broken relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's what our faith is about. And uh, we have broken relationships with each other, with God, with all of creation. And so uh, salvation and redemption is about the restoration and reconciliation of, of relationships. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a, le- a lot less kind of onerous and shame inducing way of looking at sin. Yeah. But I, I think, uh, I stand by it. And, um, more and more, I think that a very helpful term for thinking about sin is trauma. Mm. Uh, 
sinfulness, brokenness is trauma. Trauma has to do with broken relationships. And um, so I see that everywhere. And then if, so if you, if you start to say uh, that we're all, we are all victims of trauma, we're all victims of brokenness, and out of our brokenness, we hurt and wound other people. Yeah. And um, we can't get beyond that without the help of the divine. Um, and um, getting beyond that means the mending of, of relationships. And so this is a way of actually being much more compassionate mm -hmm. towards ourselves, but also towards other people. Mm -hmm. So there's another book that I like recently that's called um, What Happened to You? And, um, and the authors are arguing that um, too often we say, what's the matter with you? Hmm. That's, by, by the way, something I was asked many times when yeah. I was growing up. Very shame-inducing. What's wrong with you? What's the matter with you? And, um, but what we should be asking is, what, what happened to you? Mm -hmm. um, and encouraging people to tell their stories and, um, and, and to try to understand them better. So this is, a, you know, th some of the things that I've been mm -hmm. thinking about lately. I, I think yeah. it's, it's, there's so many, like, reading your book is, is one thing, but of course, as you know, as a good writer, and good writers are good readers, obviously, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and uh, seeking to be a good reader, you know, you're listening to these contours that are present. Um, and, you know, for, for my interest in, and number of people who listen to us and people we work with there is this kind of dual thing in your book that i picked up at least there's the relationship with your father um which yeah. carries much of this trauma and difficult things and yet love and all like all these things that mate and others help help us unpack um but then there's the relationship with god um mm -hmm. and how these two can often be confused and yet um there's such light and hope there. There are mm -hmm. a couple of quotes in that with your relationship with God. Uh, I did not ask to long for God, yet nothing draws me more even now. Uh, in another place you say, but God dwelled within me differently. God would not be dislodged. Um, as if God was someone, presence you couldn't get away from, but this was not uh, just in the same way as your father. Um, tell us a bit about about interweaving those those relationships yeah so you know any kind of psychology will tell tell us that our our images and views of god are intertwined or affected by our relationships with our parents mm -hmm. and some some people see that as problematic or they think that a relationship with god is a delusion um i i don't i don't believe that um uh I, I was very fortunate in that I had a vivid spirituality already as a young child. And I experienced a call to ministry when I was four years old uh, during a church service. And I come from a family that goes to church, but there are no church leaders or pastors or teachers or even officers. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, my family was always kind of on the fringes of the church. And so for me to experience a sense of call, was a strange thing. People didn't know what to make of it. The last clergyman we know in our family was back in the 1500s. So that's a little while ago. <laughs> so, you know, where did that come from? Now, as I think about how I, uh, how I related to God as a child, I certainly see that um, at times I had this kind of a parallel fear 
to God and God as I had to my father. Mm. That is, uh, you know, I thought, my, you know, if my father could punish me yeah. for stepping out of line, God could also punish me for stepping out of line. So I was, you know, I was afraid of God in, in some ways. But I also loved, I loved God. Um, and one of the things that is hopeful for me is that my relationship with God actually carried me to a new way of understanding God. Particularly, I had another, I had a mystical experience when I was 14 that I write about in the book. But I got to tell you, yeah. I had that experience and I didn't tell anybody about it. Really? Uh, I didn't talk about it for a year. A year later, I was in a conversation with a pastor and I thought, I think I can tell him about it. And I did. He didn't really know what to make. He was a nice guy, but he didn't know what to make of it. That's what I remember. And, uh, uh, and, then, I, and then I talked about it a few years later because I joined a church where you had to give a testimony to join the church. This and is a great part I, of the book. I yeah. love to be this. I'm like, continue. <laughs> uh, I can't remember what's the great part. But anyway, oh, you, you, I, you, I, I think you said that, that you talked for like 30 minutes or 45 minutes and, oh, because yeah. you didn't know any different. And I'm like, Oh, that's so awesome. I'm just imagining everyone on the, on the said, other side one of, of the, that going, is he stopping? Well, no, somebody, somebody on the panel or whatever said, I'm glad you're not any older or something, something like <laughs> yeah, that. Anyway. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. I'd, I'd never been to a service like that. I didn't know what you were supposed to tell. So, I, you know, I, I told my whole life <laughs> in intimate detail. And part of the problem, though, was this was a church where you had to have, and this is how they said it, you had to have made an experience with the Lord which is a very interesting phrase. Huh. Um, I don't know if English was a second language. Theologically, it troubles me, you know, because yeah. we're not supposed you, to make yeah, an experience. That, yeah, that's not kind of how I understand where that, like, uh, catalyst right. comes from. But, he, you know, he, what he was saying was you need a born-again experience, yeah. essentially. Mm-hmm. And I'd never had that. And uh, so I went with great fear and trembling, and I thought, i got to throw all my credentials out there. And so I told him about the call, and I told him about, yep. I think I told him about this division. Um, so, and then I, you know, I, I really didn't, I hardly ever talked about it to people, but as I reflect back on it, you know, it was a vision of the father and the son and they were looking on me compassionately. Hmm. And I think what an amazingly rich thing, because on the one hand, it was a, a, a model of a father and a son relating compassionately to each, each other, other. Yeah. in yeah. contrast with my own experience, yeah. uh, but it was also, they were looking on me with great love and compassion. Mm-hmm. My heart was being warmed by how they were regarding me. And so I feel like they were carrying me beyond the mm-hmm. um, childish view that I'd had quite naturally and helped me to start moving to a new place. And, you know, there were other experiences along the line where, um, uh, where, where I was ex- able to experience God in a more generous kind of fashion. Mm-hmm. That really formed me as a person, a Christian, as a pastor. Yeah, so I mean that's just beautiful. Yeah, Sorry. one of the one of the large kind of themes, I think, particularly as as one of the major themes of of your memoir is this relationship with your father. That mm-hmm. as as a reader, it very much made me kind of consider what were parenting norms, just in a more generalized sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even just like I, I talked with my parents last night in anticipation of this conversation, and both of them told me about, you know, corporal punishment was normal, and they experienced mm-hmm. it at school. And like there's, 
there was just this, not only an acceptance of it being normal, but it was, it was like prescribed. It was what should be Mm -hmm. happening as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, that your, that your writing kind of highlights some of these, these like larger assumptions about parenting. And I'm interested, um, I'm interested if you can kind of unpack maybe some of what, what your thoughts about parenting and some of the ways that you experienced or saw parenting as you were growing up. And then as you've been working through stuff through writing this, how you kind of see some of those things either changing or things maybe that need to be re-examined. Like how, how do you see that now? Uh, boy, there's a lot, there's a lot to get into there. <laughs> right. So, uh, corporal discipline, discipline was, that was just the standard when I was mm-hmm. growing up. It didn't get question. It was a parent's right to hit kids. And including teachers could hit kids Yep. and principals. Um, you know, there were, uh, straps and, you know, the principal would have a strap and the teacher could swat you on the butt or whatever. And all of this was, was standard. So, uh, that's one thing that we should note. I, th- I think another thing worth noting is that when I think about my parents, my parents lived through the Depression in Holland. They lived through the Second World War, the occupation of the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. My dad then volunteered for a terrible war in Indonesia uh, where there were a lot of atrocities. He saw, he saw things that gave him nightmares, yeah. literal nightmares, for the rest of his life. Then they immigrated with basically nothing. And the reason I point all this out is that um, the older generation did not have the luxury of uh, processing feelings in the way that we can, for example. Yeah. They were concentrating on survival. They were just trying to survive. And so, yes, at times they were rough, and I would say too rough. Um, But I have a certain kind of compassion uh, for them regardless, that on the one hand, they didn't know better. Uh, my dad's father beat him way more than my father beat me. So, you know, there were some things that they didn't know better. And I also think that they lived in a state of emergency survival for so many years. And that also can cut into one's capacity for compassion and empathy. So I'm just going to acknowledge all that. Now, having said that, um, my dad was very militaristic and I ended up joining a Mennonite church and I became a pacifist by conviction. And then I always, I always thought, well, uh, I'm a pacifist because that's what the Bible says. And uh, I believe the Bible. And, you know, there's, there's elements of truth to that. But now I wonder, <laughs> if, you know, did I become a pacifist to stick it to my dad? <laughs> In level? the most pacifist way possible. Yeah. 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 And, pacifist uh, aggression, uh, they call it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so I've, I've wondered about that. And... Um, I think I say in the book, you know, some people rebel by joining a motorcycle gang or doing drugs or uh, promiscuous sex or alcohol or, or whatever. And I rebelled by becoming a Mennonite. So that was my big. <laughs> I did note that. Rebel. And I was like, <laughs> yes, very rebellious. Arthur. <laughs> I'm, I, I want to jump in and ask, it, there's something culturally going on right now. Like we speak about this change and I, you, you mentioned uh-huh. Gabor Mate's book. He actually, um, you know, in there speaks about the connection. He's quoting somebody else, I think at the time, but between um, this violence and that 
often induces trauma and fear. Yeah. Uh, that I think that someone actually talks about um, every every anti semite is a person who's fearful, kind of. That there's mm-hmm. a, but then there's connection to the, and um, and then I was thinking of a, also a good book to kind of look at, and this is older. I think it's the 1980s. A woman named Alice Miller who wrote. Yeah. You know, decades ago on child rearing and violence and she talks about what's called poisonous she calls it poisonous pedagogy like not only do you learn as a child certain ways of learning mm-hmm. and what it means to be socialized and concepts of god concepts of social order or whatever it's a it's a pedagogy a way of understanding that's absolutely poisonous um, but what's interesting to me recently, like I was watching Bill Maher um, a couple weeks ago and uh, real time with Bill Maher. And he was interviewing at the early interview, he was interviewing a, a writer named David Sedaris. You probably know David Sedaris, a humorist sure. and writer, mm-hmm. great writer. Very good writer. Um, but they're both, I don't think either one of them have kids. Not that this, not that you have to have kids to qualify to this. But the conversation turned basically to an extensive uh, period of time, an extended period of time where they're both saying, not entirely joking. Um, we need to, we need kids to be hit more um, because, you know, kids are so bad now. It used to be that if, if, I, if you acted up in a grocery store, yeah. your parent could hit you and you couldn't be, and you, so there is this kind of, um, I don't know if it's a romanticism for a time or if it's, you know, a throwback to, um, uh, what do you think about, what do you do with that kind of concept that if we give this violence up, what mm. what might we lose? Do you think that's still present in some places? Oh yeah, for sure, it's still present in places. And uh, you know, I know plenty of people who are influenced by was it James Dobson, yeah. Dare to Discipline or whatever was I think that's yeah. what it's called, right? Yeah, it Isn't was. Like, uh, yeah, something like, so, like the strong-willed child. Yeah, the strong-willed child was another one. Oh. Dare to this all this ah, stuff. Yeah, right, right. So. Um, you know, my wife and I decided we weren't going to hit our kids, so we didn't hit our kids. And um, uh, so I dialed violence down that much. I don't, I don't believe in it. And, um, you know, we, we have cats now that are really rambunctious and we don't hit them. <laughs> when I was growing up, if, if animals misbehave, you hit them. Yeah, yeah there was, you, there was kick a, them, you, you know, could... an appropriateness to, to violence towards animals as well. Like, yeah. They, yeah. yeah. So we don't do that. Um, so, you know, and, and that's partly my pacifism, right? That you, sh- you ought to Good be able to move. Yeah. Uh, you ought to be able to move forward without, uh, without violence. Mm. And um, um, if, if being nonviolent doesn't solve it, then you suffer. You suffer the consequences. That's, you know, that's just, just the way it is. The thing about, the thing about hitting, um, and by the way, I tried reading Alice Monroe about, no, Alice Miller, yeah. uh, 20 years ago. And I didn't, I didn't like her books. Oh, it's, it's very she, it's difficult reading. And yeah, yeah, I, I understand some of why. Sorry, go ahead. But, but I reread them within the last five years and I liked them a lot better. Uh, so I had taken more ownership yeah. for the gravity of uh, how we treat our children. Hmm. So, but when I think, for example, when I think about my, um, my upbringing, the big fear that parents had was that children would be spoiled that was the word mm-hmm. spoil i still hear that from uh from the older generation concerns about being spoiled so my, my, my daughter had a baby uh, four months ago and i've heard some older folks say that she's spoiling the baby and i'm like 
Come on, the baby's four years old. What do you, how do you spoil a four month old baby? And uh, I thought about the spoiling. So it seems to me that this concern about spoiling is a fear of lacking control, that, that, that we will lose control of the child. We can't let them be spoiled. We have to control them. We have to break their will. But there's also another factor, and that is we don't want them to misbehave because what will other people say or yeah. think? Hmm. That is a big part of the fear of spoiling. What they'll say and or think about the child and about us. As, as yeah. Exactly. It's, the child is spo- spoiled, and that's always a bad reflection on the parents. And, um, you know, one of the things you learn in family of origin and family systems work is that you are not responsible for the feelings of other people. So you don't have to worry about it. So in other words, um, my kids are differentiated adults. They can do what they want as they will. And it doesn't reflect on me. Sometimes I agree with them. Sometimes I disagree (laughs) with them. Sometimes I'm neutral, but you know, it's not about me. Um, you know, if if one of you said, hey, Arthur, what's wrong with your parenting choices, given your kids' career choices? Uh, I would just like, you know, they're adults. They they choose what them. they want to do. What's that? That's up yeah, to exactly. them. Exactly. It's up to them. And so um, this for me was a big, this was family systems helped me a lot mm. in the 1990s mm. to realize that um, I am, uh, they don't reflect on me. I do my best. And I trust that they do their best. Hmm. And in the big, big, grandest scheme of things, we trust that God is at work and doing yeah. good things. No, I think you've touched on something that, that really important. And I mean, in you know, uh, risking moving to to a different kind of topic. I think I I completely agree with you. I feel like that is first and foremost. But I want to say yes, so much, so much agree with you there, and. I, I think that I, I understand why in the particular theological and church culture that you would have grown up in, why that could not exist. Um, it was very similar, I think in, in my upbringing, I know that my mom has talked about in retrospect, um, you know, the behavior of myself and my brothers, how that reflected on her in our mm-hmm. church community and the the anxiety and the fear and the social rejection that she feared because of our behavior. And right. and I think when you when you look at it, I, I know a fair amount of Dutch CRC people went to a Dutch mm-hmm. CRC school. And so there was there was a lot of familiarity. Like, talk <laughs> it's of like, oh, I met these people and, before. Yeah. Oh, the green. You know, yeah. And droppies and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I, I know that stuff. Um, <laughs> and. Right. And so I think that when you're talking about how our children are not reflections, like that that doesn't like that doesn't reflect back on us. I think about theologically so much of Calvinism. I'm not sure that you can have that stance. Like I'm not sure that it allows for that because you get like this hierarchy, you have these accountabilities. And so I think some of what you're talking about has required a theological shift from from what I think some of the systems you would have grown up in kind of hold, like you, you speak of church discipline in, 
in your book a bit. Wasn't there a, a scene oh. somewhere where there's a well, visit and, and from the church elders yeah, to somebody because they've done the math on yeah, yeah. The somebody's, math on somebody's pregnant, maybe a couple, oh, we did the math there and that was a couple weeks before your wedding mm-hmm. or something like that. that. Yeah, this kind of thing. Yeah, so it does seem that yeah. that some of the, the theological culture that you're talking about in, in, in what you would have grown up in has this understanding of this, you know, communal and corporate accountability for actions that, I think have nothing to do with anybody else. Um, so I, I see that you've clearly made some of those shifts. Like when, when did you notice that kind of happening? Like I, I kind of get some hints as I'm, as I was reading, reading through your memoir that I'm like, Oh, I'm wondering if the dissonance is starting to, to come in here. That's, I think that's a good question. Like why the shifts? What, yeah. What when did it? you kind of see that shifting away? Cause you definitely speak of kind of feeling like you're in that system when, when you're a kid, but you clearly are no longer in that system. So, yeah, that's probably hard to fully untangle uh, right now. There was always, I mentioned this, there was a sense that my family was on the fringe of the church anyway. Mm. And uh, I felt on the fringe at school. I was bullied a lot. Um, And, uh, you know, because bullies can find victims, right? So I was bullied at home. And I think I must, I must have presented as a victim in some ways. Mm. And so I got bullied. Um, and that also uh, sent me, it made me feel on the fringes of, of the community. So I think that's part of the dynamic. Um, but I also think that um, I think my mysticism is part of what uh, moved me along as well. And, you know, I don't want to bash the key, uh, CRC too much. Um, and and I, I don't even, I, I don't even really know. I have friends in the CRC, but I don't really know what the church is like now. Yeah. And uh, if I'd grown up in, if I grew up now, I might be all right. When I grew up, um, it, was, it was a very narrow way mm-hmm. of being Christian, yeah. and I didn't fit it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I left. And actually, not many people left then. Certainly, not teenagers on their own. It was sort of an unusual thing to do. One of the things that I see in retrospect, though, is that for me, the mysticism or a sense of connection with God, relatedness to God has been very, very important to me and has carried me. Mm. And one thing I would say about Calvinism is Calvinism does not lend itself readily to mysticism. Mm. And Calvinism is about getting the theology precisely right and uh, arguing with other people who don't have it exactly right because we want you to be just like us, Mm -hmm. which is another whole kind of ball of wax. It's connected to the child thing. Because we're afraid, we're afraid to encounter people who see things differently, yes. and so we want to all have the same mindset. Yeah. But um, for me, this sense of a relationship with God and God's involvement in my life carried me along and gave me a different perspective. I do remember that, uh, especially when I, I went to university, and then I got exposed to all kinds of different ideas, being very fearful at times. Well, what if I'm? What if I get this wrong? Mm-hmm. Am I going to end up going to hell? What's God? What's God going to say? Uh, but gradually, you know, I ran into other people who kind of blew my mind open. And uh, one was this nun in university who wanted me to write about my ten stepping stones, ten ten 
life stepping stones. I was really frustrated with her. Uh, she's doing lots of journaling stuff and introspect. I didn't want to do all that stuff, but uh, you know, I, I wanted a good grade, so I did it. And uh, but you know, what I see in retrospect is that she was she was one of the people who was showing me a way forward. Mm. And uh, in university, I started reading Catholics just sort of on a whim because I wanted to prove that they were wrong. And uh, and then I'm like. My goodness, this this guy reads the Bible way more than I do. Mm-hmm. This guy takes the Bible way more seriously. This guy prays way more than I do. Uh, maybe I maybe I ought to be paying attention to Catholics. <laughs> yeah. And you know, so you know, a number of Catholics have been uh, really influential on me. Um, and then in, 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 I, I had the privilege of uh, being a friend of Henry Nouwen, mm-hmm. and he was the biggest, single most uh, uh, Catholic influence, I guess you could say. And a father, you know, another father figure, mm-hmm. who, by the way, also could not pronounce my name because he had a very <laughs> thick Dutch accent. <laughs> totally get that. <laughs> so um, there's a theologian, I think it was Baron von Hugel, who said that a fully orbed Christianity has to have theology, has to have some sort of institutional structure, and has to have mysticism. Um, and I think that's pretty good. I think I would add, though, I think there's a fourth orb that we need to have, and that would be service. Um, and uh, and my point is, none of us gets all of them. Mm-hmm. None of us does them all in a balanced way. And I think that Calvinism doesn't uh, lend itself very well to mysticism. And so that's where it fell short for me. I didn't have I didn't have other people there that I could talk to about my faith or my experiences of God. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, I'm really grateful that Calvinism taught me to take theology seriously. And uh, one of my Mennonite colleagues once once paid me a great compliment when he said, Arthur, your theology is Anabaptist, but you do it like a Calvinist. <laughs> yeah, and, I like uh, that. <laughs> I, think, I think what he meant was that, you know, I'm diligent about it. I'm serious yeah. about it. I think it's important, but I don't think it's all important. It's not everything. Yeah, there there are a lot of places in the book, not that to, you know, to make this too personal, or whatever, but where um, your experience resonates with with my own kind of sense of of like my background, and one of them is this this um, kind of consistent awareness of the presence of God, or you, we use words like call or kind of, uh, and and yet, and then the living of your life in church and family and work and such through this and how those things relate. I, I think I carry something like that. So it's so, so uh, of course reading well and you write so well that you allow the reader to do that, to be mm-hmm. like, Oh, I resonate with this and yeah. this and this. Um, and th- I'm, my question is that there's this interesting consideration when you have that sense of the awareness of God, when you have, it could be, could refer to it as mystical or whatever, but just this kind of, um, that God is present in your life and has something to do with you. And then you go to church and, and you can't talk about that at church largely. And then you become a pastor. And interestingly enough, even in those church settings, right? So there is this way in which your faith does play out at church, but there's also a way in which, and so you're uh, what I experienced, I'm really grateful for all those people, but it's not necessarily the key place where that kind of attentiveness to God's presence and listening was kind of finding its expression. So it's one of the things that strikes me in your writing is that you're able to speak about your experience and even speak with gratitude about your past. But there is this way of doing it that 
opens up the reader to consider God's presence uh, beyond the the very particular things like that. Um, so my my long way of getting to the question of like, what about in your work as a pastor? So whether it's relating to other pastors when you're younger, or being a pastor, or a professor, or a teacher, how does this kind of mysticism play then with the expectation now that you're a leader? So you're not a kid anymore, you're not a child, but you're there to speak about God. You've got a microphone in front of you, whatever it is. Now, I'm going to tell you about God. Uh, how does that kind of mystical side relate to that now that you're speaking about God? Well, I've been a pastor for almost 40 years, so there are a lot of things to talk about, or a lot of uh, experiences to reflect on. You know, I think when I started out as a, a pastor, I assumed that people were going to be good Christians. They would experience God the way I do, or they would um, uh, they would do what I thought was right. And one of the things about being pastor is to learn how to love and respect and enjoy um, many different people's many different ways of experiencing and engaging God. So uh, one of my churches was a rural church, it was a rural Mennonite church, and people were not articulate about their faith. And, um, and they, didn't, they didn't talk about their faith. They couldn't talk about, they wouldn't talk about their faith. And there were really two things going on. One was some of them were university educated and they were, they were kind of mm. skeptical by now. But there was also a very uh, long-standing Swiss Mennonite tradition of not putting yourself forward, uh, that you should be humble, that you shouldn't be putting yourself forward and um, pretending that you are, you know, uh, bragging about your relationship with God. And so you practice your, your faith by quiet acts of service. Mm -hmm. So um, the women, you know I, know, I know this sounds probably stereotypical, but, you know, the women quilted and they would make these beautiful quilts that would then get auctioned off and sold, uh, auctioned off for a lot of money. And then the money would go to Mennonite Central Committee yep. to world, to world development. You know, that was, that was their faith, but that was a yeah. way of embodying and practicing their faith and it deserves to be celebrated and mm -hmm. marked. Uh, um, it's, it's not inferior to how I practice my faith. In fact, it might be superior. Um, but, you know, so I, I think of two farmers, a father and a son. Um, and in December, this was one of the hardest things that ever happened to me as a pastor. A uh, little boy that I had grown to love turned just after he turned nine, he died. And uh, I had walked with him and his family for years. He'd always been sick. We knew it was quite possible that he would die Young, I was actually with him uh, when the plug, plug plug was pulled, and when he died, and I did the funeral. Um, this was December in the Kitchener Waterloo area. It was a really cold winter. The frost was deep, and this far, farmers and his son, well, they're both farmers. The son was an adult too. Uh, rather than hire somebody to dig the grave in the churchyard with a machine. They went with their pickaxes and shovels, hmm. and they dug that grave through the frost in sub-zero temperatures. And um, who's to say that that is not a glorious example of practicing Christian faith and connecting, connecting with God? So um, hmm. 
I think two important lessons in pastoring. One was to really appreciate different people's experience and understanding of God. And so when you preach, you know, and I do a lot of preaching, um, when you preach, you're preaching to people all over the map, especially in the Anglican church where I am now. Yeah. And, you know, the trick is how do you put together a sermon that touches people wherever they are uh, and moves them forward, challenges them, nudges them, moves them forward, but also encourages and affirms them. And so one of the ways that I do that is I, I tell a lot of stories in my sermons because people can enter into stories. Yeah. And, and they're not stories that I get from online or sermon resources. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, usually they're stories from my life. So the other, the other thing, when I wrote the book about technology, uh, I, I wrote about an idea from a philosopher called Focal Practices. And he says that uh, the way to deal with technology is not to put limits around technology and make a lot of rules about technology. Uh, the way to deal with technology is to put in the center of your life your focal practices and have the technology serve your focal practices. Ah. Um, and uh, that was a really helpful concept to me. And, and one of the ways that I wrote the book was I went out and interviewed a lot of people who were committed to their focal practices. And I learned, I learned, I learned from them. And, and what I saw was that people have interests and passions that I don't always have. I don't always, like, why do you, you know, why do you, do, like, why, why does that catch your fancy? Um, I'm, you know, I'm not always sure, but as a pastor, I would have to pretend to be interested, right? Um, <laughs> but but once, once I got into focal practices, I realized, oh, this is a way of connecting with other people. This is a way of connecting with something bigger. This is a way of being reminded of your priorities. And so um, I'm a lot more interested now in, pe in people's focal practices, even if it's not something I'm going to do or take up. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, will, I will talk to them about it, and I will listen to them, and I find it fascinating, actually. So uh, that's sort of the one learning, is, is to come to a deeper appreciation of the breadth and differences yeah, of, like of other that. folks. The Anglican church where I am now is a very uh, multicultural church, and uh, most of the people in our church are from other countries. And, uh, and when I go to church, I stick out um, because, uh, because of my skin color, frankly. And, um, you know, a lot of those folks have, I think they maybe they have a grade eight education. Yeah. And, um, and they have a power of faith that I really respect and admire. And I have some, I have some pastor friends who think their job as pastors is to debunk, right? They, de they debunk, you know, oh, yes, this miracle in the gospel can be explained yeah. by such and such. Or this was inserted by an editor to prove such and such. Yeah. And, and I'm like, okay, well, that, that's interesting. But is that our job as pastors yeah. to be up there as academics in the pulpit to try to dissuade people or to show them um, – to show them the faults of their ways. Like I, 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 you know, I'm not convinced. I don't know if I'm making sense here. You are because yeah. it, it's, you know, that approach is not asking the question of like, what does it mean to see the people that are here? Well, and in some ways yeah. I think, yeah, I think in some ways maybe people who, who kind of lean back to that, let me show you what the Greek says about this sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I, I do wonder whether is part of it that they are struggling to, yeah, make those connections. And so they're like, okay, well, I can fall back on this. And this person says this about this. I think what you're calling for being able to find something that can actually speak into a person's life is a far more difficult task and yeah. a far more difficult way to, to prepare a sermon. But I think you go, you're like, your job as a pastor is not to be a biblical scholar. Your job as a pastor mm-hmm. is to be a pastor. Right. I, I would say it's about love. Hmm. You know, do you love the people in your congregation? Yeah. Do you love God? Do you love the scriptures? Um, you know, can you get excited about the Bible stories and yeah. the language and the praise and the poetry? Uh, you know, I think that's our job. Um uh, which doesn't doesn't mean that you don't wrestle on something usually often on your own or somewhere else that you wrestle with some questions. I've wrestled with lots of questions. That's not the issue. But the pulpit is not the place to do that kind of work. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so like in one sense it could it can sound like a trope and be like, oh well, you know, it's about love. And I feel like the older that I get, the more I go it's so much more difficult and it's so like, it, it's not a trope. Like it's a trope because it, you can't properly articulate it or it, like yeah. we, we can struggle to properly articulate it. But let it, me, but let me, so uh, exactly what you need. Let to me do. push from the other direction. Cause I have Ooh. a feeling you do this. Cause I actually in your book, you do this. Um, uh-huh. So you, our job is not to debunk. Like I'm thinking I preach as well often most Sundays. And so totally with you on that. And yet, uh, one of the things that our friend uh, David Goa says a lot, he got it from his father, a pietist uh, on the, on, in the prairies. Mm-hmm. Um, and David is now like Orthodox, uh, yes. but, but grew up, yeah. Lutheran. Lutheran. Um, mm-hmm. Like evangelical Lutheran. And his dad used to tell him, most people are better than their theology. Remember that, David. Most people are better than their <laughs> theology. And so while we're not about debunking, one of the gifts in listening to people in mm-hmm. being present for those people, whether they're digging that grave or whether, you know, all these kind of like the, maybe they, they have a, an education that it isn't as advanced as ours or whatever, is, is to consider some of the damaging theological concepts that they may be carrying that are doing tremendous, yeah. mm-hmm. tremendous yeah, yeah. you know, damage to themselves yes. and their families and others. So it's not debunking and attacking and kind of, but it, but it is kind of demonstrating that accepting uh, love of God in contrast to some of these human ideas that we place upon God, yeah. right? So it's just, a, just a, such a nice kind of interplay um, to be able to do. And yeah. so you have, um, toward the also, end, you know, sorry, go ahead. I, actually, there were two things that I, well, I wanted to respond to that, and there, yeah. there was another idea I hadn't finished. So one was, uh, it is true that, that uh, people's, deficient theology can be really damaging to them. And so that is also the work of a pastor to work with people on those ideas and show them a different way. And again, I often do that with stories. But um, the two places where I was appointed as a priest here in Toronto, to Anglican churches, one one was one of the most conservative, this is no exaggeration, one of the most conservative churches in the whole diocese, to the point where there there are, and I know this for a fact, there are priests and even some bishops who are a little suspicious of me because I had a connection with that church. Oh, yeah. Um, Happens all the time. Okay. Yeah. I'm serving okay. in a church like that right now, too, part-time. Okay. Yeah. So, but the other church I served is one of the most liberal churches yep. in the diocese. <laughs> and it, um, in fact, before 
the diocese came on board, they voted to to be in favor of same-sex weddings. So, you know, uh, which would never happen in the You're other church. Both sides no. of that spectrum. <laughs> yeah. So, but what I want to tell you is that in both churches, I was really loved. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really affirmed. And I found that so fascinating because I could tell you I was the same person in both places. I was the same priest in both places. I preached the same. In fact, sometimes I recycled the sermon from one of to the other. Uh, I preached the same. Speaking my language. It, it was the same stories. It was the same theology. But, you know, in both churches, I loved the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, you know, we work with the lectionary. Yeah. And I would often, Sunday after Sunday, I would go, this is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. So I'd say that we keep saying that. And I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't, I wasn't, yeah, I I got a lot of favors, favorites, it turns out. (laughs) But, you know, and I love Jesus and I love the people. I love being with the people. And um, in both churches, uh, like I said, I was very well received and very, very well affirmed. So um, that, that's what I wanted to say about um, about, about love and pushing people and trying to, Mm help them to see a new way. But, you know, I, I started an ideal way back that I didn't think. Let's circle back didn't. then, Arthur. Okay. Sorry. I, I wanted to say it was that the two things that I main things that I learned as a pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was to have a breadth of appreciation yes. for people's experience of God. Uh, but the other thing I learned as a pastor, uh, and it's, I suppose it's related, but what I learned was um, I'm not in the church to, create people who see and believe things exactly the way that I do. Amen. And I came, I became a pastor kind of by the back way. For a long time, I wasn't intended to be a pastor. I was a social activist. I was a peace activist, probably to bug my father. And, uh, <laughs> um, and then I ended up pastoring. So then when I was pastor, I was like this activist in the church. You know, I knew everything about peace justice issues and people should get good on board with me. And then I, I gradually came to see, you know, God is even beyond those yes. partisan political divides. Yes. God is interested in justice, for sure. But, um, yeah. you know, uh, what does it mean to uh, really celebrate and listen to and break bread with people who are deep, deeply yes. different than me yes. politically and theologically? Yeah. And uh uh, that's something that, that has become a very, very important priority for me. Yeah, and, and, and a gift, right? Like you realize yeah. what, what a gift that is. The, where I'm going as we kind of move toward the end and asking questions about hope and um, is toward the end of the book, okay. you, um, there's a couple of things you mentioned that, well, there's lots of things that stand out <laughs> to me, but you quote a Charles de Foucault prayer and then you quote Edward mm. Abbey. Um, and I'll take a minute here to read the Foucault prayer because I'm, I'm doing this as uh, as counter to some of that um, angst of trauma, the uh, the sense of like how we respond to things like violence or or this poisonous pedagogy we spoke about. Because um, this is a prayer of surrender that you talk about from um, from your uh, Carmelite experience uh, and praying this. After the formal prayers, we th- we sat for thirty minutes of silence. Uh, the prayer time was concluded by kneeling, stretching out our hands, and reciting aloud from memory this prayer. I abandoned myself, or Father. I abandoned. Well, just even just saying that. Yeah. Just there, right? Yeah. I didn't get hit. Isn't it? Father. Mm-hmm. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. 
Whatever you may do, I thank you. I'm ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart, for I love you, Lord. And so need to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence, for you are my Father. I hold that um, in line with some of what you write and then putting together Miller and Mate and that um, mm-hmm. in some of this violence and the, the things that we would say are, are concerning and troubled views of parenting, um, the parent is, is never wrong and the child gets confused because the child is this person who, who cares and provides for them, also is violent towards them or whatever. And there's this weird twisted pull of surrender, like do what your parent says no matter what. This view mm-hmm. of surrender that you write, that you include this with this prayer seems very different. It seems to me related to your mystical vision of having father and son look at you compassionately. In other words, surrender is trustworthy. Like you, there, there's a trustworthy place and relationship into which you can surrender. Um, the Abbey quote then at the end was, um, Edward Abbey once claimed about a spot, this is the most beautiful place on earth. There are many such places. Every man, every woman carries in her heart and mind the image of the ideal place, the right place, the one true home. So I'm putting together this concept of surrendering into God as home, as like the, the place of utter love and acceptance. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I just thought like, what, what would you have to say to us in terms of your hope moving forward? You end the book, hopefully, with beauty and surrender, having told some of these really difficult experiences um, how do you experience hope now? Um, well, I, to, just, just to back up, I would say about that prayer, the Charles de Foucault prayer, that was Henry Nouwen. That was Henry Nouwen's prayer. Like he, he prayed that every morning uh, from memory. That's why we were praying that, that day. And I, I found it very, very powerful um, also to think about that prayer in the context of, as, as you've pointed out, in terms of my own life. Um, like all long, <laughs> like all Christians who lived a long time, there have been all kinds of all, there have been all kinds of seasons in my life. But at one low point in my life, I happened to be at the monastery where I'm an oblate. I got some bad news uh, while I was at the monastery, and I was sitting in a room that I sat in many times, and there was this little quote on the, the wall which I'd looked at many times, but it never sunk in, yeah. and. Uh, the quote is from Meister Eckhart, and it says, whatever happens to you is the best possible thing for your salvation. And so I was thinking about that in the midst of this bad news, and I thought, you know, if I really believe what I say I believe, that's somehow true. I don't know that I want it to be true, but it's somehow true. Whatever happens to you is the best possible thing for your salvation. Um, and uh, sometimes I've been able to say that with more gusto than other times. Yeah. And I can tell you it's not something I've ever quoted at anybody else. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, be, yeah. No. Right. Uh, you know, if they're, they're pouring out the heart to yeah. me about something that's grieving them or hurting yeah. them, mm-hmm. I would never say it to anybody else. But 
having that hope also helps me as a pastor. If I can believe that God is at work in that person's life and that God wants salvation and healing in that person's life, then I can look at, I would say, I look at people with, sometimes I look at them with two eyes. I look at, at them close up with what there's, what's going on right now and the struggle that they're having. But I also look at them with a bigger picture in mind of the purposes that, that God has. And, and that's part of the job as a pastor to do both at the same time, to listen compassionately, but not to get swamped in panic uh, because of the hard things that they're enduring. And I can tell you, uh, you know, quite honestly, through the writing of this book has, has prompted some of the hardest soul searching I've done in my life. And um, I've really had to face some darkness within myself. I've, I've really had to look at that question, what happened to you? Uh, Arthur, or what happened to you, Arthur? And um, uh, and I've really, you know, I've been mad at God sometimes in the last few years as I've thought this through. But I still do trust that God is at work. Uh, I still see God at work. And so that last chapter is a really ironic chapter because um, I'm in this place of great beauty uh, that means a lot to me, yeah. that brings me a lot of peace. It's a room with windows, some of which crack spontaneously for reasons that I never know. But, you know, there's broken glass throughout my life. Yeah. So there's that going on. It's a place of retreat for me. Todd, you've had a hard time tracking me down because I'm up there and yeah, yeah. not so easy to reach <laughs> yeah. by technology. But, you know, you know who paid for that? You know who paid for that house up there? It was my dad. You know, my dad, the successful businessman, who broke a lot of glass, but he also sold a lot of glass and he built greenhouses around the world. And so there's this, always this kind of mixedness going on um, that you have to be aware of. And uh, it doesn't help me to look at the world black and white, yeah. uh, uh, which is the, the point of view I was brought up with, which is, you know, which most children have, I'm sure. Um, so I just see, I just see mixedness everywhere and I'm way more relaxed about it. We don't have to get everything right. You don't have to get everything right. But we can trust that God is at work. And uh, and I do trust that, that God loves us and that God is at work. And uh, that God is at work healing this trauma. I think that's, yeah. you know, for me, I'm going to pre preach at the Easter Vigil this Saturday. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's about the restoring of relationships. And, um, and, and that's what our work is about. And I, I've seen that happen often. I'm so, so appreciative. There is, I just keep thinking like with all your work and your writing and your teaching, um, you have shared in this book, uh, a personal account of your life, um, who you are, uh, asking who you are, um, what, what happened to you instead of what's the matter with you. Right. That, yeah. uh, and then you've allowed the people like us who read the book to be able to see how much more that can show us and teach us. We need the other stuff too. We need the people mm -hmm. who can write on, you know, this theological thing and you, you can do that. Absolutely. You've done that. But this brings it to that, to that whole other level. I experience in you, so I'm not, I wouldn't even ask it as a question. I think I'm thinking about it because of my own pastoring and such. I sometimes, you know, you have the question of like, okay, so the way I'm experiencing God now, the way that maybe I'm able to speak now, given, you know, experience in writing and reading and whatever else, um, uh, what if I had been able to do this earlier? 
thing. You know what I mean? Like if, if when I was a, a pastor here or when somebody else was telling me this about God, I wish I had been no, you know, know now how to respond to that or something. But, but I don't even, I don't even think you, ex- you experienced that. I, I don't really that I don't look back mm-hmm. with regret. Right. Um, and so there is just this, and I think that aligns with the hope. There is just this sense of like the healing of the trauma is for now, but also does reach back that Mm -hmm. redemption, redemption works for those stories that you tell in this book as well. They're not fixed. They're not just there and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. That there is, Mm -hmm. there are certain, there's there's things that God can do about it. So, Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just really grateful for your work. Alison, I don't know if you have any last questions or kind of, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was beautiful and I thought it was, uh, well-written for, for listeners. The book comes out May 9th, I believe. Is that correct, Arthur? That's what. Yeah, that's the, the official date. But uh, uh, Erdman's has released it, so I. Ah, uh, so it is. You available. can find it now, Definitely. but if you want on Amazon and stuff, you're going to find yeah. it. Yeah, like pick it up. It is both like so beautiful and so hard, and I think you you write you write so well, and you you leave space for for resonance in in the writing. Like it's like, yeah, it's crafted in such a way that that you hear personal resonance yeah you, you, in, you tell your yeah, story but you allow us to hold our own stories there it's really alongside. beautiful so i mm. think that it's a pastor it's very <laughs> yeah, pastoral yeah. in that way yeah. well done um thank you so i mean we would really encourage people to to pick it up um we're really grateful for for this chance to get to know you to get to know your work um i know that as we we talked before the interview you're actually going to be in the vancouver area in july for a lecture on memoir writing and the ethics of that mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. july 13th it'll be at uh, regent college so if anybody in the vancouver area wishes to yeah. learn more about this like head out there Todd yeah. and I will be there will you sign <laughs> copies of your book there <laughs> I might be able to yeah, there you go. at, least, at least for us <laughs> you know the, the, um, I do a lot of I do a lot of speaking and um, it's really interesting that in certain church contexts people want you to sign books in certain contexts don't so Mennonites don't ask you to sign the book no, same, with, same with the Plymouth Brethren no 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 yeah, you right would, you wouldn't even have your head <laughs> You know, yes. but you know, Anglicans and Presbyterians, they They're like okay their books yeah. signed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get it signed. Thank you so much. It's been yes. a pleasure speaking Thank with you, you and really recommend it as Allison did. Thank you so much, Arthur. Take care. Appreciate it. We'll see you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Rector's Cupboard. We're taking a short spring break and we'll be back mid end of May. Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our Cupboard Master is Ken Bell. Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support Rector's Cupboard by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening.